You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. CCR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and you're on 3CR. 8.55 a.m. breakfast. Monday breakfast. It's Monday. Good morning. And a big thank you to Beyond Zero Emissions for the last show. It was so good. Always so good. Yeah, oh, they're fantastic. It's, um, it's a nice start to the, to the week to get your mind in that sort of yeah. environmental frame. Groove, you know, yeah. Up yeah, and ready. Sure. Up and ready. We'll tackle the week. Uh, <laughs> yeah. just, just a quick uh, touch on the weather. Partly cloudy today. We know it's been raining, so very high 90% chance of showers is uh, well and truly gone. The chance of thunderstorms in the east early this morning with small hail, uh, top of 13, and tomorrow mostly cloudy with a 20% chance of showers in the morning, um, and then it gets better Wednesday, Thursday with tops of 20. So yes. looking forward to a, <laughs> so a nicer week. Yeah, so just a, a brief return to winter. Um, we're all bundled <laughs> up here. Yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah. Several jumpers and, uh, yeah, it's, it's been pretty chilly. Yeah, it really mm. has been. Yeah. Rude awakening on Monday. Yes, indeed. <laughs> however, however, it is going to warm up, as Dean said. Yeah. Well, exactly. and, then, and then we'll be complaining about it in about eight weeks' time. Yes, well, yeah. you know, there's those bushfires that are happening in yeah, know, New South Wales is, yeah. and Queensland. That's and so just, scary. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's only even, I think it was 26 or 27 um, for three or four days, and then obviously these bushfires started. But I did hear that one of them was deliberately lit, which doesn't... It's terrible. Know, yeah. yeah. Really? Mm. Well, it goes through the mind of some people. But what's on our show today? Oh. Well... 8.15, yes. we've got Brett Cousins, who's the director of an amazing play called Ulster American, which I went to see on Thursday. Oh, you're getting out of some good I know. I really, I'm so, honestly, I'm so lucky. Um, and, yeah, Brett Cousins is the director. It's a play that's come from um, Ireland or the U, well, the UK. This is a big topic in the, yes, in the play as well. Yeah. Okay, um, yes. And, yeah, it's about a young female writer, an A-list actor and an ambitious West End director. And they meet to discuss what is going to be the, the next play of the decade, if they can only agree on oh, what that oh, is. And it is brilliant. So I can't wait to speak to Brett at 8.15. Sure, yes. it's not Brexit. <laughs> oh, there are touches on Brexit, obviously. <laughs> no well, the play itself could be a mobo. <laughs> yeah. And um, and just before that, at eight, we'll be speaking with Ben Rancherum, who's um, sort of an environmental activist and quite concerned about what's going on in the Nullumbic, um Green Wedge. Now, have you ever heard of Green Wedges at all? Sort no. of. Yeah. Sort of, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, well, they surround Melbourne, and I think there's about 12, but mm. yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that um, when we speak to Ben. And uh, Nolenbeck in particular is um, known for its greenness mm. and its uh, conservation, but there's a new management plan coming in 
that uh, a lot of the community residents, and I heard about this before I spoke with Ben actually, are concerned about that it doesn't maintain those environmental, that environmental ethos. So we'll be speaking to him around 8. And um, yeah, I think and then, then 7.45, we've, yeah. we've got Julian Cribb, who is going to be speaking to us about his book, Food or War, which is a study into the obsession of food, the history of war and famine, and what the future may hold. Um, and are we clever enough to think our way out of it, basically? Well, I think mm. it's a really interesting Me and Judith book. have <laughs> both got a copy here. Dean wasn't in last week, so he no, missed out. Yeah, but yeah. we're going to, yeah, we've got yeah, so many questions. Very, it's a very we? interesting, really interesting yeah. book. Yeah. And at 7.30, we're just going to have a bit of an open discussion about the, uh, yeah, about sustainable fashion. So I went to Melbourne Fashion Week's Sustainable Runway Show, and it's just, yeah, brought up a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, a lot of questions, and I think it's, yeah, a good place to talk about it. Yeah, good, and I'm looking forward to that. We had a, a story, oh, God, see, over a year ago now on mm, the was. sustainable winter coat. I don't know if you remember, that was on mm. Wednesday, Brecky. Yeah. And uh, the person, I think, worked, I'm sorry, I don't remember her name, actually, but she worked in the area of design. She said, no one's going to be very happy for me saying this. But to go to your op shop for the mm. most sustainable, yeah. yeah, the most sustainable winter coat. Mm. Anyway, so yes, I'm looking forward to hearing what you found out. And I think, uh, Dean, you had a story also. Yeah, we did. I spoke to uh, Etico, Nick Saviatis, who's a founder and director, yeah. and they are the only Australian company. There's a report that comes out every year who received an A plus for their, um, you know, I guess the the, the lack of environmental impact of their right. fashion brand. Mm. So, yeah, there's a few things. Okay, that well, The that report is released every August. So, yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. Well, we there's more to, to look at. Yeah. And I guess uh, we're going to start with um, Hong Kong, which is ah, in, the, in, in the, the news, news again. again this morning. And the people aren't backing down. But we're particularly going to hear from the seminar last week, last Wednesday night, called the Bee Water, Hong Kong versus China. And uh, there are a number of speakers, but one in particular, Denise Ho, has been a leader and activist um, uh, on the protests in Hong Kong, going back to the Umbrella Movement, which was about five years ago. And Badju Kao, who is um, also, he's an artist, and he's produced a lot of art inspired by the Hong Kong protests. So at this seminar, there, there was a huge police presence. It was in Swanston Street and uh, and my usual difficulty in finding my way. And also on Swanston Street, I had a number, but often you can't find the numbers. But I could just follow the police cordon kind of down to where the uh, seminar was. And uh, people, it was really interesting to watch because people going by were saying, you know, what's on? What's what's happening? And people who didn't know were, you know, quite nervous. But I think there was... Do you was think that what the, the police would have been um, contacted through the organisers of the event? Or do, like... Well, I think I think a few weeks ago there had been some conflict between pro-Beijing and pro-Hong Kong protesters, so that my sense was that people were worried. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think one of the organisers who was on WeChat was concerned listening to some of the messages going. I mean, she didn't say that, but but I did hear it from someone else. So, um, yeah. So anyway, that was just for a start. You know, that was uh, set up a kind of. Funny feeling, but once inside, I mean, it was uh, the crowd was very animated, very engaged, and you'll hear that in some of these. So, what we have today is some just some excerpts 
from those from that seminar. Obviously, it went on an hour and a half. Couldn't you know do all of that, but just a few highlights for me, in particular, to hear um, Denise Ho, who's you know speaking from the front line in a sense, who's here. Uh, as a representative and and wanting to engage uh, you know our support in the work that they're doing so the the event was well maybe I should just say who else spoke besides Denise so just uh, Denise is um Denise was a canto pop singer obviously a pro democracy ad- activist but perhaps less well known she's an advocate for the LGBTIQ community in Hong Kong and uh Bedro Tao, I already mentioned, is a political artist. He's from China. And Clive Hamilton also was on the podium. He's a professor of public ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. The event was moderated by Louisa Lim, and she's a senior lecturer at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, and she puts out a podcast uh, called The Little Red Podcast, which is fantastic also in keeping up to date on what's going on in China, Hong Kong. And we're going to start now with how she introduced the seminar. The timing for this talk comes after 13 extraordinary weeks. They've been weeks when up to 2 million people, almost a third of the population of Hong Kong, came out onto the streets, united as one, against the extradition bill. They've been weeks of extraordinary scenes unfolding in our city, scenes of violence and fear, scenes that were unimaginable until they happened and still remain unimaginable even after they happened. Uh, A new low came this weekend, the first time we saw riot police using water cannons and blue dye to spray protesters. We saw riot police beating people on an MTR train. Nine political leaders arrested, including Joshua Wong, and elected legislators like Jeremy Tam and Al Nokhin. And this week we saw the start of a school boycott. 13 weeks, a total of 1,179 arrests, although that figure ticks up by the moment. More than 2,000 rounds of tear gas fired, at least 10 police bans on protests. And tonight we are hearing news that after 13 weeks, the Chief Executive Carrie Lam is on the point of finally withdrawing the extradition bill. In the ne- <laughs> Probably within the next half an hour, but will that be enough? And what is the way <laughs> What is the way forward? So today we have an extraordinary group of people to discuss that. And I'm so delighted to welcome Denise Ho, who requires little introduction to most of you. She's a pop star, a democracy activist, and at this moment she's been one of the most articulate and loudest voices for Hong Kong overseas. In July, she appeared at the United Nations Human Rights Council to ask for China to be removed from the council. According to Beijing, she is Hong Kong poison. After the Umbrella Movement in 2014, she was arrested and her music has been banned in China. Denise, welcome to Melbourne. Hello. Hello, hello. I am incredibly honored to be here with you all. Uh, I just want to, you know, just by raise of hand, how many people from uh, like Hong Kong is, how many Hong Kong is here? Okay. <laughs> ah! 
How many? <laughs> okay. Long same day. Okay. <laughs> I just told them to calm down. Uh, and two are Australian Australians. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And two, are there any people from mainland here? Yes. And without masks, too. You know, that is a brave thing. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so I will make it short and we'll get into the discussion very quickly. Oh, sorry, Taiwan. And that was Denise Ho at the and Hong Kong Democracy Activist. You're just checking out the crowd here, and you can tell how enthusiastic yeah. everyone is. And um, I love the um, the Taiwanese. Taiwan, Taiwan. Yes, I know. And, and I, I got think, a shout out in the end. Yeah, no, I think she was a bit embarrassed because, in fact, she went on to say she's going to Taiwan, you know, you know, next yeah. week. And she also said, if you've got any messages or things you want to send home to your family, see me after, <laughs> which, oh, which I thought was also so very sweet. Beautiful. Yeah. So now we're going to hear from Denise as she tells us about, you know, what's been going on, what's been happening in Hong Kong. And we have been having these huge protests in Hong Kong. The first one was on June 9th. We had a million people on the streets because we were protesting against an extradition bill that was uh, to be amended by the Hong Kong government, which if it did, uh, then people would be potentially extradited to China. The, the firewall that existed between Hong Kong and China would have been removed. So what happened in June? We had one million people and then no response from the government whatsoever. And then two million people came onto the streets. Still nothing from the government. And so uh, what started out as a very, very peaceful protest. I was in the front lines and I saw absolutely no police uh, being there to, to control the situation, and we had no violence whatsoever. So Hong Kong people have demonstrated our level of civilization. We are highly educated and civilized people, in spite of all the smearing campaigns that have been going on by the propaganda machine, which is the communist government. They have been trying to frame us as a violent protest, asking for Hong Kong independence, which is absolutely not the truth. We have shown that we are able to be largely peaceful and with even two million people on the streets, no glass was broken, no cars were uh, broken, anything. But of course, we were met with uh, extreme police brutality and violence where tear gas was thrown into the crowds, rubber bullets, sponge bullets, beanbag bullets were aimed at the people at head level, we were extremely frustrated and angered by how they were trying to suppress us. They were trying to intimidate the people. To date, there have been more than, I believe, 2,000 uh, tear gases and bullets, everything that was fired at the people within the three months, and maybe even more. I, I, probably my, my numbers are not updated. This was in June. And since then, people have evolved. Hong Kong people have evolved. Nobody had masks or goggles, really, in the beginning. But then, gradually, we had to defend ourselves from this kind of extreme police brutality. 
where they have been arresting people really for no justified reasons. Um, they have been targeting mostly young people. And up to now, we have had more than 1,000 arrests, within which there have been around 100 or more people who have been charged for riots. Our five demands, um, including the withdrawal of the extradition bill, uh, we are also asking for this independent invest investigative council to be formed so that this kind of police brutality would be addressed and justice would be brought to uh, Hong Kong society. Probably you have seen images on television where uh, there have been fires that have been set uh, on the streets and that has been something that the communist government they have been utilizing to target this as a uh, mainly violent protest, which I would like to explain a little bit here because as I have explained just now, there wasn't anything, uh, no, really no violence in the beginning. But then why this has gradually escalated into uh, this kind of confrontation, it was because of the way that the government, they have been hiding behind the police force and really turning the whole Hong Kong society within these three months into a police state. So we at the moment are in face of a humanitarian crisis where the police are really just doing whatever they want with the people. Unfortunately, we have had to escalate our defense also. And there have been this slogan that it was you who taught me that peaceful marches are useless. So we had 1 million people, 2 million people, and then 1.7 million people on the streets and still no response from the government. And that was why people in the front lines, they felt the need to protect the people in the back. One of the, the youngsters, they actually wrote this testimony on Facebook saying that the reasons they have uh, you know, resorted to more aggressive means was because they wanted to protect the people who were behind them. And so this is a sense of brotherhood, sisterhood that has been very, very moving to, to witness among the people, not only young people really, but uh, elderly people, middle-aged people who have stood up against this sort of police brutality. It is a very wide spectrum uh, of participation from the people. It is not only young people who are in the, in this, on the streets. It is everyone who believes in uh, these freedoms and human rights that have been promised to us by the Chinese government in the one country, two systems. So that is what we are asking for. We are not asking for Hong Kong independency. We are asking for the basic law, the one country, two systems, to be respected for our autonomy that was promised to us in the 80s with the joint declaration by the leaders in China, to, for this really to be respected. And if you've just tuned in, that was Denise Ho, Hong Kong democracy activist speaking in Melbourne last Wednesday at the seminar Like Water. She explained why the Umbrella Movement protests of 2014 failed to achieve change, because she was an act she's very much engaged in those uh, uh, protests as well. And now she describes the strategies protesters are using this time around. We have learned from our mistakes from five years ago, and 
it has exploded into this huge comeback of Hong Kongers with the help of the internet. We have three specific tools that we, are, we have been using. There is, for one, an online forum that is something like a Reddit where people can pitch ideas and strategize on that platform and then others can upvote or downvote the, the, these ideas. So those uh, ideas that have been upvoted the most would be taken into action. Really, it's, uh, it's very automatic and it's very unique to the Hong Kong people who are very flexible and very, um, you know, very motivated to, to, to make things happen. So overnight, there would be posters that would be um, designed by anonymous designers. And then these artwork would be spread onto Facebook and social media, like, uh, Instagram, and also mainly on Telegram, the, the app. Uh, where people can be anonymous, but still uh, we can form groups and channels that can help to disperse these uh, different tactics and different uh, strategies and also these kinds of artwork. Because we are decentralized and there is no particular leader that the government can address or target, makes it uh, into a very, very interesting movement where sometimes things happen very quickly, and then tactics can be changed instantaneously you know, by the hour, and sometimes some events can be cancelled. Maybe sometimes uh, they would make mistakes in their, in their actions, but we can recover very quickly because this is a generation that is able to you know, reflect on errors that have been there, and uh, you know, they, they would come up with a different tactic or a different solution very, very quickly. And so, of course, the creativity uh, goes into, onto the streets with the Lenin walls, where uh, people have been using post-its to uh, create all these walls in different districts of Hong Kong. And we have this very, very important motto that came from probably the most famous Hong Kong actor ever, Bruce Lee, which is Be Water. And this is also our title of this tonight. And the mentality is really to be water, be solid or you know, very flexible and solid at times and fluidity uh, comes in at very critical times. So we do not hold on to anything. That makes it very difficult for the government to, to clear us off because we could come and then we could go and then we come back again at another time. The kids, they have used all sorts of creativity even on the front lines where they have used signs to create some shields for themselves. They have learned to extinguish these tear gases that have been thrown at them. So it started out with you know, pouring water on it and then some others discovered they can use the traffic cones and then they put it on the tear gas and another person would be pouring water from the hole on the top and then recently they have discovered that they can use thermos you no, know, they just put it into it and then they would shake it <laughs> and then, you no, know, the tear gas would be done with. We should give them a hand. That is incredible. And that's Denise Ho speaking at the seminar, um, like, um, yeah, like water that was on last week, last Wednesday night. Another speaker was Baju Tao. 
um, political artist from China, and he's got the nickname of China's Banksy, which I didn't know, and he's done a lot of artwork for the the protesters, and also you know had an ex- he showed a lot of photos. We won't be able to go into that too much because we you know can't see them, but uh, I thought it, just his introduction was interesting and uh, and great to hear from him. Actually, this is the poster for my Hong Kong exhibition supposed to be happened in the end of last year. However, three days before the art exhibition, the police in China find out my identity and they visited my family in Shanghai. They actually take my family member to the police station and they're delivering this threat to me by my family to say, Badiu Tao, you're going to cancel this show in Hong Kong. Otherwise, which means there will be no mercy to you or to your family. And a very hard group decision was made. The show was cancelled. It is a very hard experience for me. It's a double kill. Because firstly, a very important show is cancelled. Secondly, I have to realize that the only protection, which is being anonymously, has been taken away from me. Now today... I'm showing you guys my face, standing with you, and telling you we should fight back. And the reason for that is that's the only way we can protect ourselves. It's letting the world know what we are fighting for and what we are facing. If you remain in silence, if you're hiding, then the Communist Party will still after you because they don't forget, they don't forgive. It's like swimming with the opposite current. You have to continue fighting to defend what you've already had. After my show cancelled, I received a lot of help from Hong Kongers. From my social media, Almost every week, I have tweets or direct messages saying, Hey, Badiu Tao, how are you doing? Are you okay? Because during the period, I was actually fed away from social media for a very long time in order to protect my documentary film, which is released two months ago. But during this time, I'm constantly having the support from Hong Kong. And now, when the Hong Kong magnificent protests begin, I think it's time for me to pay back this support with my art. And he has, and he went on to show so many um, of his, much of his artwork that um, spoke to what's going on in Hong Kong. It was fantastic, actually. And I think every one of the speakers was pretty amazing and so much more to learn about them. But during the seminar, when it was actually on, there was some breaking news, and uh, Louisa Lim announced that. While we've been sitting in this room, Carrie Lam has uh, released a statement uh, with four new proposals. The first is the withdrawal of the extradition bill. Uh, The second is appointing two new extra members to the independent police uh, monitoring body, the IPCC. The third is an offer, again, of dialogue. And the fourth is... um, (laughs) that an independent 
group be set up to study the deep-seated problems in Hong Kong society? So I want to start with you, Denise. What is your response? Is this enough? That's our response, really. This, let, me, let, me, let me translate this saying the five demands. We need them all to be met, really. Uh, and that includes the Independent Investigative Council, which she is still um, refusing to form. And to give some context, really, uh, the way that what's the the gamgeng way the the one that we have right now in Hong the Kong IPCC. yeah the IPCC uh, it works in the way that the if you have a complaint you have to first go into a police station and to make the claim that someone from the police force has abused you or has abused their powers and then the police they when they get that file they have the authority to uh, forward it or not to that inquiry. So basically it means that, uh, that, in, that IPCC is useless and it's actually non-existent. So whoever they put into the, that council, it, it, it makes no difference really because anyone who goes into that police station, they could be arrested anytime. So no one is filing complaints. I think there have been under 100 complaints or uh, no, 100 or so uh, to this point. And it just shows you that people are reluctant to, to, to go through that system, which puts them into that very fragile position. So, yeah. <laughs> we really do not trust this government. And just by throwing you know, these biscuits to, to people after almost three months of, of protests, uh, that is not an act of, of you know, genuine sincerity with us. It's just some sort of tactic maybe to, to try to uh, calm the people and to have some portion of the people go back home. Hong Kong people are not stupid. Hong Kongers are smart and we know if you are sincere in your, your wordings and your statements. So we have been tricked many, many times. We have been rigged many times also, and we are just not going to be in that position anymore. And that was Denise Ho um, responding to Carrie Lam's proposal or proposals, and it seems that it's just not enough. And it seems like the crowd was uh, totally in agreement there, you know, the, yeah, very active and engaged crowd. And uh, so um, we're hearing more on the weekend about protests, and I think it's going to continue for quite a while. It sounded like the crowd was very sounded, involved. Sounded, yeah. When I booked, there was only 28 places left. <laughs> so I realized yeah, a lot, there are probably a lot of people who wanted to get in and couldn't. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. So we're going to just um, have a bit of a discussion now between ourselves about sustainable fashion. And this conversation has come off the back of the sustainable runway at Melbourne Fashion Week and I went along to it on Wednesday and it was a great night and you got to see a lot of different Melbourne designers who are actually taking sustainability seriously and it's part of their whole model it's not just an afterthought um, so it's kind of central to what they do. It's central to central what they're to the doing. Design. How interesting. Yeah mm. and actually I was going to do this at the end but I'll just start with saying 
two designers what what um they're actually doing as part of their sustainability sort of central business so there's one called Kauai and they were part of this runway and so it's all Melbourne clothes and Melbourne designed Melbourne made Melbourne manufactured and they're they're looking for they're looking to put out clothes that can be a part of a whole cycle and never be never be thrown away so they're looking to repurpose the loved clothes into things like rugs or artwork um and they're also working on a way to compost their fabrics, which which isn't happening at all at the moment. Because I think 90% of um, the clothes that are sold on the high street are synthetic and they don't oh, get, they, they can't be they composted. Can't, they, they they're can't, not compostable. They, they, they are not compostable. They're going That's into right. landfill. Yes. So so at the heart of Kauai, they're really looking onto how fabric can be reused, reused, reused. And if it is completely dead at that point how it can be composted which Mm. is really important Mm. um another one that stood out for me was elk and um it's a brand again or a a designer in melbourne and they offer a full transparency report on their business so you can go online and you can download and review exactly where they buy their materials and how they source them you can also uh, view how many full-time employees they have versus casual workers, what their carbon footprint is, what their water footprint is, and everything that you might want to know if you were going to try and be more sustainable about how a company goes about actually purchasing the fabric. Or Yeah, and are, do, are they mainly Melbourne-based, or do they re- source their, their um, materials from Melbourne or from Australia? So they you know? source their materials from all over the world. Mm, okay. They have a very detailed list of every outlet they use, every chain that goes on in that, yes. and they have percentages of um, how much of their business is in Asia. And mm. I, I saw one, it was like 2% in Japan, and then they listed details about the business that they operate in japan how they work and the conditions all the the conditions and yeah and they do make they do make good clothes um and And so it's that full transparency which i think is important transparency in the fashion industry is not commonplace so it's it's good to hear that a melbourne-based business is doing that um you know which makes it hard to know whether things like human rights abuses are happening to some of their workers? Are they being made in a Bangladeshi factory? And yeah. Are these mm. people getting minimum wage? So and I think also people often assume straight away that if the fabric is being made in Australia or if the clothes are being made in Australia, that means that there aren't human rights violations. Yeah. But yeah. that's not true. Okay. So there are many factories and there are many, there are many people in Australia that aren't being treated fairly in the workplace. Yeah, I, I actually remember, a lot, particularly in, in immigrant communities here, mm-hmm. um, women doing piecework at home, in, in their homes, and under a lot of pressure. But mm. I haven't read about that recently, but I, mm. I do remember that that mm. was going on. Yeah. Well, just before we kick off a discussion, because I know um, Dean's got some stuff on this as well, I, I was researching a couple of facts about fashion in Australia and fashion around the world. Um, and just to kick us off, um, I'll just list a couple. And so my sources are from ABC, and there's a good documentary called The True Cost, Oxfam, and the University of Queensland as well. So the first one, 
Charities spend 13 million a year on waste management programs. So that's in Australia, and that's 13 million dollars that aren't that isn't going to social welfare programs each year, but it's going because they're getting 60,000 tons of waste every year in from donations. So clothes that just simply cannot be resold. So either all the buttons have gone from a shirt or. So are these the kind of things we put in these clothing bins that, yeah. that you, when you're clearing yeah. out? So yeah, so all of the things that you don't want and then it just gets left on a charity's doorstop. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, that's not going to do anyone any no. favours. But until we can we can sort of compost all of our clothes, yeah. that's always going to be a problem. Um, Australians are the world's second largest consumers of textiles, buying on average 27 kilos of new clothing and other textiles each year. And... 23 kilograms each year um, per Australian goes into landfill. So that's quite a shocking discovery. And that's after that. Mm. The first is the US. Mm -hmm. So the US is number one. Australia is number two. Mm. Um, The fashion industry is the world's second largest polluter, right behind the oil industry. And it takes an average of 7,000 litres of water to produce one pair of jeans. So that's the amount of water you drink over the course of about five to six years. And there are two billion pairs of jeans produced each year. I I never would have thought about water and clothing Mm. somehow. So that's really interesting. Yeah. So all of those jeans, how many got in your wardrobe, jean jackets, whatever, (laughs) 7,000 litres of water to, to make one pair. And that's probably just a standard pair, none of those fancy ones that you're never meant to wash after 150 wears or whatever it is. Yeah. And to bring it down to a humanitarian level as well, 250,000 Indian cotton farmers have killed themselves in the last 15 years, partly as a result of going into debt to buy genetically modified cotton seeds. And mm. that's where the that's oh. where all the water is as well. It's growing the cotton to make all yes, of, and, to make and a lot of clothes. And cotton definitely is a, a huge water consumer. And I did know that. And it's a big issue for Australia as well mm. when people are setting up cotton farms and the amount of water that are required. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I think yeah, the Melbourne the Melbourne Fashion Show was good in highlighting what local businesses are doing and different trans different uh, sort of transparency levels throughout these designers. But ultimately, it's such a huge, mm. it's a huge picture. Mm. And, um, and they did have seminars. Facets, isn't there? Like there's, there's obviously the work that a company does to, you know, I guess, have really, really good practices. But then, you know, we know that um, six years ago, the, the, the Rana Plaza fell down and which led to a lot of these fashion houses being held accountable for the way that they yeah. mistreat their workers and led to that was in bangladesh yeah, right yeah yeah, yeah. so um, you know so you've got this one aspect where a company is working really really hard but there's i guess things that are making it r- impossible for them to be a hundred percent fair trade certified so to speak yeah like sourcing their material yeah. like and fast fashion is cheap paid the right way. yeah, yeah. Yes, like fast fashion right. is cheap and yeah. there are things like afterpay and all of these other f- things to to almost give somebody zero excuses to just keep spending and spending and spending yeah and i mean i think buy. that's the other thing the uh, the advertising the encouragement to go out. I mean, the whole fashion thing is based on creating need in a way. Like, you you know, you've got to have the latest, yeah. creating that. And, I mean, that that argument goes back years and years. Mm. Like, I remember Walter Benjamin is a theorist 
who talked a lot about that, you know, the creation of desire for something that you really don't need at all. And so that, that's a whole other level. It's consumerism at yeah. its absolute best, isn't it? it well, it is. And, and uh, you know, we're talking about people aren't spending money in the shops these days, and it's not mm. good, but, you know. They're still spending. They yeah, might not they be going to the high street, but they're still spending <laughs> a lot of money yeah. more than ever. Uh, yeah. And before we go to your song, so did, and did, was there, there's a Melbourne business called Homie. And what they do is they support young, it's a social enterprise, so they support young people affected by homelessness or hardship. Mm-hmm. 100% of all of their clothing profits, so it's a streetwear label, um, go towards equipping you know, young homeless kids with confidence and experiences. So for a social enterprise business like that, who's doing such a really progressive thing in putting 100% mm-hmm. of their profits towards youth homelessness, if you flip that over and then you look and then you sort of go into how they source their stuff, it might be a really fine line because they're doing something really, really good, but they're not A plus in sort of getting there. So it's hard, you know, as a mm. business to actually have a hundred percent complete model in fashion. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, and and so you need to look into it, and you need to make an effort. One of the things I'm wondering, though, if you've got any hints, because you know it's spring coming, mm-hmm. and it's a time when we throw out <laughs> things that are worn out or that you might not use. Yeah. So it sounds to me like I shouldn't really take it down to the I recycle. Think, what's think what's the what, answer? I think from what it, from what I'm understanding about being more sustainable, and I'm trying all the time, is if you've got if you've got things that yeah, you're going you're gonna to chuck these out. Just try and maybe just think a little bit more creatively about what you can do with that garment. Because back in the day, I spoke to my nan about this not that long ago. She said that they used to, they used to just use everything. And if That's they couldn't, right. they'd it's cut true. it all up and then they'd, true. they'd weave it into mm. some rugs or they would make it into, yeah. make it, or even like Art rags, smock. dish rags. Yeah. Because yeah. why go, go, why go out and buy it anymore? I mean, I call them J cloths in the UK, but they're the blue, yeah, they're the blue gingham things. Yeah. But what, like you don't need to, to be buying a constant stream of new products yeah. all the mm-hmm. time. There are there are things that you can use yeah. old fabric for. Well, I'm inspired. I'm inspired. Clothes swap, like which people yeah. are. Yeah, a clothes swap. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Okay. Yeah, there's there's so many options. Um, and yeah, and and at Fashion Week they had seminars go in, um, which were led by some high brands and then some brands who. I mean, when when the big brands talk about it, I tend to just think you're jumping on the sustainable train. You oh don't yeah, really I know, care. and that's yeah, that's why you really only, do have to look. Yeah, it's yeah. only when you do your research, and th- and this particular runway was very good. I mean, at, at just highlighting some of the brands that are doing their best. And you mentioned the True Cost documentary. Yeah, the which, True Cost which documentary. Is that people should actually maybe. With friends, host a screening of that yeah. to give people a bit of an and idea. And then do a clothes swap as well. Yeah. Oh, I, think, I think we're okay. <laughs> Maybe we're, we're, we're ready. <laughs> Maybe we're going. <laughs> but um, K8 performed as well. well. Lucky and, you. Yeah, very lucky. Got to see her. So we're going to play Miss Shiny now. She called me diamond on the weekday. Got so much pressure. That's why this song be stuck on replay. I got pressure. She called me diamond. No time for mistake. Too scared for writing. You know I dreamed this reality since I was a young and Right now who I be and now the manifestations coming in. Now why you acting like that? Now why you acting like that? Put your thoughts into the universe. 
universe and she gon' bring it right back. You so high on yourself, mama, you don't need that. No, you your biggest critic, girl. Best believe And that was Kate with Miss Shiny. And now we're going to be speaking to Julian Cribb, author of the new book, Food or War, a study into the obsession of food, the history of war and famine, and really what the future may hold. And are we clever enough to think our way out of it? Um, So, Julian, thanks for joining us today. Can you give us a quick intro about what food and war is about? Yeah, sure. Um, Look. Humans have been fighting over food and the resources to produce it, i.e. land and water, for about 17,000 years, so far as we know. Uh, Most wars contain a food component. Uh, Either people go hungry during a war, there are famines, or else the war breaks out because there is a dispute, a conflict, over food, land and water. Mm. And this issue is coming to a head in the 21st century when the food system that we've relied on for the last five, 6,000 years is cracking up. It's breaking down under the immense pressures of climate change, uh, soil loss, water loss, etc. Yeah, and when reading this book, as somebody who has an interest in the subject, but um, I'm in no way an academic or anything like that, um, but I actually found it really easy to read, even though it, it was packed, completely packed with knowledge. So is the book written for somebody who has maybe an introductory level of knowledge about the subject, or... Do you think you need to be you need to be well across it before? No, it's written for anybody who eats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're all interested in food at some level. We we do it three times a day. You know, yeah. There's 8.5 billion meals. Uh, sorry, 23 billion meals served every single day, and we're actually eating the planet. Uh, mm. Devouring those meals is is devouring the soil, the water, the plant species, the wildlife, and so on um, that actually comprises them. Mm. And I love the way that you recap history as you as you sort of take the reader through the book. And um, why do you think it's important that we understand the the um, historical strategies or conflicts surrounding food and war? Well, for a long time, there's been a view that famine follows war, like uh, World War One, there was a famine after that. World War Two, there was a famine after that, and so on. Um, in actual fact, very often famine precedes war. We're seeing that in Africa, the Middle East, uh, and, and so on, even in, in, in Central America today. When a country runs out of, out of food, the first thing, the people get very angry, and the first thing they do is take down the government, and the next thing they do is attack their neighbours. So, uh, you know, there, there are signs of this. And what I'm doing is looking for how we solve this problem before it brews up into a really big problem. Mm. And this is the fourth book in the science-based series um, that you've written. And the first one, uh, The Coming Famine, that you, um, that you published in 2010. So looking at food and focusing on famine almost 10 years later, from your experience, do you think we're in a different position now than we were then? Uh, yes, we're in a worse situation than we were 10 years ago. 10 years ago was the first warning sign that we had that the global food system we've got could collapse. And I wrote that book warning about that. I, I've been writing about food and agriculture for, for nigh on 45 years. So I've been studying this. I've been talking to farmers in 50 countries around the world, uh, talking to scientists and so on. And I'm aware of what's going on. It's mm. a terribly important industry. But, you know, because we've got the supermarkets are always full, there's, uh, you can walk into the Melbourne markets and all that wonderful array of food. and You know, everything looks rosy. It's not. Mm. It's tissue thin. 
Uh, what happened in 2008 was that there was a, a grain crisis, basically, which came out of nowhere and shocked everybody. Uh, and that could happen again, and it can happen again and again and again as climate change builds up, because climate change hits the very crops from which we make our, our bread, our cereals, and so on. Wow. And how do we how do we get out of this mess as the most wisest, creative, intelligent animals? It's down to us to figure it out, right? Absolutely. Um, we're very good. We, we spent a million years anticipating what can go wrong. I mean, when we first invented fire, we did it to stop leopards from eating us, basically. <laughs> uh, we didn't do it for, for the cooking. You know, we, we, we did it to, to discourage the leopards. Uh, so we were looking into the future back then, one and a half million years ago. We're still looking into the future. Everything we do in our society looks into the future in some way. I'm just saying we've got to look into the future with regard to food a lot more seriously than we have done now. The global food system that fed two and a half billion human beings in the year that I was born, 20, in 1950, is not going to feed 10 billion people in a hot, resource-scarce planet. Uh, by the mid-21st century. It's, it, it's an old-fashioned system. We need something new, basically. So who, who in your view, needs to be a part of these, these new conversations? Well, farmers, scientists, governments, policymakers. But m the most important person in all of this is you, is the consumer. Consumers have to understand that if they buy food that is unsustainable... They have a direct effect. Their little dollar that they spend on food has a direct effect in destroying the agricultural resource base. It causes soil to erode. Every meal, every hamburger you eat, dislodges 10 kilos of topsoil. Now, to, to, to make that hamburger, the beef, the, the vegetables, the, the bread, that removes 10 kilos of, of topsoil from the world. And think how many hamburgers get eaten every single year. Mm, yes. So this is a colossal hemorrhage of the world's topsoil. Now, that's not going to last, you know. It's, we're losing soil at the rate of 1% a year. In 50 years' time, we'll have lost half the world's farming land. So, Julian, it's Judith here, and uh, thank you for the book. I'm kind of in the midst of reading it. And uh, I'm wondering what kind of response you've had, and are you seeing any movement in the directions that you outline in the book that we need to follow? Absolutely I am. And as you progress in the book, you will find I cite a whole lot of examples of farmers and little companies who are reinventing food. Farmers all around the world are saying we can't go on farming like we are at the moment, destroying topsoil, spraying chemi toxic chemicals left, right and centre. So we have to get back to a form of agriculture that regenerates the landscape, that recovers the environmental systems that support agriculture. We're, we're seeing a whole lot of very entrepreneurial people in cities all around the world reinventing food systems, producing new high-intensity food systems for the city. And the critical thing is that we support them by recycling the water and the nutrients that those cities currently waste. And the third big element is that there are people, the fastest growing industry in the world in, in food today is aquaculture, fish farming. Now, it's not done terribly well. It can be done an awful lot better. And I believe that by the mid-century, you're going to see two huge developments. One is deep ocean aquaculture, and the second one is um, the, the growing of water crops. So we're going to stop cropping the land as a, the way we do at the moment and we're going to start cropping the ocean and that will lead to a much more sustainable world a more peaceful world 
a world in which we can actually recover the species that we're now extinguishing at, at the moment. And, and Julian and Stan here, just quickly, can that be done without genetically modified crops? Yes, it can. I mean, genetically modified crops will help. And genetic modification has been given a bad name by the companies that promoted it for their own profitable ends, right? Mm. Um, if genetic, uh, genetic modification is in the hands of, of public research stations and it is used to reduce diseases, for example, to reduce the use of chemicals, for example, um, then it's a pretty handy tool. But it's a screwdriver. It's not going to fix the entire world problem. You need a toolkit to do that. So GM is just one tool in the food kit. Um, and again, GM will be decided by consumers. They will decide whether they want to put the stuff in their mouths or not. If they don't want to buy it, then farmers would be mad to use it. And uh, just the title of your book, Food or War, and the amount of money now that's been spent on arms uh, worldwide and Australia jumping into the arms industry, I mean, you must despair in a way. Look, although the, the book is not despairing, but, I mean, it's a real concern that you, you argue that, food, that providing food needs to be seen as a way of preventing war. Yes, I do. Uh, I, I'm concerned, uh, as a grandparent, that the world waste, wastes $1.8 trillion a year. That's about $250 for each of us on new engines of destruction, that is, weapons. Uh, you know, that is going to lead to some horrendous wars. Mm. The more weapons we produce, the more wars we're going to have. It's pretty pretty axiomatic. Yeah, you, you don't want to um, invest in that and then not use it. Well, that's, that's, that's the way it's going. But we also know that you can cut that budget because it was cut by 40% uh, in the early decades of this century. And so we know you can do that. And if you do that, you actually get less war. So imagine we took, say, 20% of the world's military budget and we put it into sustaining the food supply, especially in, in places where the food supply is absolutely critical, like Africa, the Middle East, India, China, etc. Um, you know, it, instead of investing in weapons, we invest in food, in food production systems. Uh, you can just completely change this all around in the twinkling of an eye, and food becomes the most important weapon of peace. Mm. We actually reduce the amount of war that we're having in the world by replacing arms spending with food spending. If we don't do something about food um, to, prevent, to prevent war, are we looking at just mass agricultural movement, as in refugees? Yes, I think so. Uh, look, we're coming into the 2020s, um, which is going to be the decade of the world water crisis. You're going to see huge water crises erupt in India, mm -hmm. possibly in northern China, um, certainly uh, in, in parts of uh, uh, Central and South America. Um, you know, the Amazon is another example of this. I mean, the world, we're, we're drying out the world. The Middle East is absolutely water critical. Central Asia is water critical. In all of these places, people could start actually fighting over water. Mm. And water, of course, is essential to, to grow the food that feeds them now. So we need new ways of producing food that don't involve a lot of water. Uh, and and we, you know, we, we, we need to... To, to take the heat out of some of these confrontations, these conflicts that are going on around the world over water, over rivers that are emptying, lakes that are vanishing. Um, people are getting very, very nervous and, and angry with one another uh, because the water system. So that water is the first cab off the rank, if you like. Mm. It's going to be the first big test. Of can we develop a new food system that is not so water dependent as the one we've got? 
And as as consumers, how easy is it to to live sustainably and to eat sustainably and follow some of the um, sort of strategies that you that you may outline in the book? Well, you know, consumers are pretty much alive to this one. I mean, I'm amazed at how much good stuff there is on Twitter and Facebook. As consumers, as foodies, uh, as farmers, and so on, chat with one another online. They're swapping ideas about how to grow good, sustainable, healthy, nutritious food. Um, and, and loving it, you know. And the current diet we've got is incredibly narrow. We're currently eating 1% of the available edible plants on this planet. We're eating a diet that is killing, get this, is killing around about four Australians in every five who die from a diet-related disease. So it's a very unhealthy diet, and wow. it is the cause of the biggest expenditure that this country has, which is the health uh, budget. So if we want to have a healthier people who don't die quite so young and, and, and badly over, you know, from one or other of these of these uh, preventable diet-related diseases, then we need a much healthier food supply than we have at the moment. Mm. So just to finish up there, I mean, we could talk about this for the whole hour and a half that we've got here, but um, where can the listeners get a copy of your book? It's published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, they have websites uh, in uh, in Australia and and around the world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julian. And I'd um, yeah, I'd love for you to come back on and and keep us up to date with what's going on with you and your studies. Very happy to do that. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. And that was uh, Julian Cribb, who has just written a book, Food or War. That's the Teskey Brothers from their new album, Run Home Slow, Let Me Let You Down. They played in the UK last week, and my brother-in-law went and saw them. Oh, did they? um, Yeah, they mentioned that they did a shout-out to the city of Preston, because one of the guys, one of the... Not the Teskey brother, obviously, but one of the band members is from Preston. Oh, really? And my really? brother and I thought that was pretty funny because it's one of my kids' names. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, so they got free yeah. tickets and he'd never heard of them. And oh. so, and then I said, oh, no, no. We you really enjoyed so it, yeah, I yeah, bet. Oh, yeah. My dad's a huge fan. Yeah, yeah. Real big, yeah. yes. Well, the other place, of course, they're from is Warndite. And uh, now we are going to go to Warndite, uh, sort of. Fabulous. <laughs> um, we're going to go to uh, Nolenbeek Shire. But before that, just a little bit of background, and we did talk earlier about the um, non-metropolitan areas of Melbourne that lie outside the urban growth boundary, known as green wedges, and no one knew very much about it, and neither did I, Mm. to tell you the truth. And uh, I found out that by looking into it, there's 12 designated green wedges across 17 municipalities, and they form a ring around the city, and each green wedge is unique, and it's got different management plans. Now, this idea uh, of a green area around a city, I think, comes from England. Yeah, Alice. in <laughs> London. It's the, the Green Belt. I think they call it the Green Belt of right. London. Yeah. Um, but they're looking to develop on it now because London is getting so yes. congested and just... Yeah, well, you mean to move in they're looking to move in the Green, the green Belt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's probably a common issue. So uh, right now, in the Nolan, Nolanbeck um, Green Wedge, which is in the Shire of Nolanbeck, 
Um, it, there's a proposal, and it's a draft, um, a re- draft replacement green wedge management plan, GWMP, for the Shire. But a lot of community members are concerned, concerned that the, the draft document doesn't really reflect the community's views, which is very keen to to con- continue and uh, support the environment in the in the area, and also that it contains some proposals that really aren't consistent with the concept of the green wedge which was established in 1994, the Green Wedge Shire. So one of those concerned citizens is Ben Ramcharam, and uh, he's a member of a number of environmental groups in the area, and he spoke to me last Friday about what some of those concerns are. But I started by asking him a little more about Green Wedges. You've got your urban growth corridors, which are quite densely populated, lots of buildings, lots of roads, a big economy. And then separating each of those corridors, you have a green wedge. Between the spokes almost, yeah? Yeah, exactly. As you describe it, yeah. And the idea is that they help contain growth within those spokes. Nolanbic in particular, northeast of the CBD. It's so, got, so what's um, where, yeah, northeast of the CBD. So yeah. what towns would that incorporate? So it's um, places like North Warrandyte, Kangaroo Ground, Christmas Hills, Bend of Islands, and Land. And the terrain is quite hilly and there's lots of bush for that reason, Nilambic was established with conservation as one of the specific priorities. Oh, I see. So when wedge. these green wedges were established, each one had their own priorities. Yeah, and the idea behind Nilambic was that it would be for conservation. Right. When Nilambic Council was established in 1994, it was named the Green Wedge Shire because the strategic aim was to protect the green wedge and to ensure that conservation um, continues. And has it been maintained mm. since then? Mostly, yes. And in fact, it's the most intact of all of Melbourne's green wedges. And that's partially because the local community really loves where we live. And in the past, they've defended it vociferously whenever it's been under threat. It Obviously, it has benefits for the people who live there. And as you say, people have really defended it. Does it yeah, have benefits right. for Melbourne, I'm wondering, for the city of Melbourne? The Green Wedge is known as the lungs of Melbourne because it forms this carbon sink. In more densely populated areas of Melbourne, there's, there are less trees, there's less vegetation, and a lot of carbon is generated from petrol fumes. Around, yeah. In and around Melbourne, for sure. It also provides clean drinking water. A lot of our Green Wedges have reservoirs. For example, Melbourne has Sugarloaf Reservoir. And part of the idea was that no matter where you are in Melbourne, you're a maximum 20 or 30 minute drive away from nature. So what's happening right now? There's a new management plan coming up. It looks like there's been a lot of consultation. So Nillenbit Council got a consultancy firm to put the panel together. From the community panel, we ended up with 32 recommendations, which were all quite positive in terms of environmental protection. So when we saw these recommendations, we were actually quite pleased. But it seems like almost all of them have been ignored in the plan that's been produced. Can you just tell me where that is now in the process? Yeah, so the draft was released a couple of months ago and was opened up for submissions. Um, So the community has had another opportunity to comment. Yeah, so rather than opening it up to just 50 people on a panel, this has opened it up to the whole community. Over 700 people have made submissions on what they think the plan should look like. So it shows there's been a, a lot of community passion. Yes, and can I ask, are those submissions publicly available? Can people look them up on the council website, for example? We expect them to be available very soon. So as soon as the agenda for the 10th of September council meetings available, we expect them to be attached to the agenda.
at the 10th of September Council meeting, there isn't actually a decision being made. Oh, okay. It's just an opportunity for people who have made submissions to go and speak to Council on those submissions, and the final decision will be made in October. So that meeting on the 10th Tuesday, tomorrow, and by the time this is first broadcast, yeah. will be quite important. And do you have any idea how many people will be coming to speak to their submissions? We're not sure how many of the 700 people have said they want to speak, but they will all be invited. So it could be a very long council meeting. Each person will get three minutes. So how mm. important is the meeting? We think it's really crucial. It's an opportunity for people who have made submissions to speak to the councillors. The thing with the submissions is there's no guarantee the councillors are going to read them. We expect some councillors will. We expect some councillors won't. When there are 700 of them, it's got to be pretty hard to absorb everything that's written. So I think by showing up to that meeting and speaking to our submissions, we're going to be able to show council that there is a lot of community concern. And 700 submissions, it does sound like there's a lot of community concern. And I've since heard that there's going to be two meetings, in fact, tomorrow night and the night after, because there's so many people that have wanted to speak to their submissions. So it sounds like there's a lot of concern happening there. I also found it quite interesting that the current plan, the existing plan, doesn't expire till 2025. So clearly someone's in a hurry to have it changed. I, I don't know. How does that strike you? Does when you uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, that Yang Yin Alpha area is growing, and I've seen some really bizarre development on on that Greensboro bypass Yang Yin Road, and obviously there, there's population growth, so it seems like someone is trying to get it all sorted so that they can build more houses. But that's yeah. not really the most pressing thing. We need to have those green. Yes. Well, I, mean, I just found that interesting. That's a question that came into my mind. In fact, it would be really interesting, I think, to go to one of those meetings either tomorrow night or the next night just to see what people have to say. But I wanted to find out just a bit more about what the actual concerns were about the draft management plan. So here's Ben Renturm again. The current plan is valid until 2025, so it's being reviewed six years earlier than it needs to be. Currently, most of the known bit green wedge is under a zone called rural conservation. And the idea of that is that the priority is to conserve the land. Now, the green wedge management plan proposes to rezone it to a green wedge zone. And, you know, it sounds like it would make sense. Sounds okay. Yeah, it's the green wedge. Um, what a green wedge zone would mean is that you'd be able to farm without a permit. Now, under the rural conservation zone, you still have the right to farm, but you need to get a permit, and that means that farming can be overseen, and we can make sure that when people are farming their land, they think about conservation, and they think about the impact they're having on the land and how they can best preserve vegetation and biodiversity. So the loss of that permit is significant, and is there anything else in the plan that's concerning? One of the recommendations from the community panelists was that grazing should be restricted to properties with low biodiversity value because one of the biggest threats to vegetation is grazing. And that seems to have been completely ignored because council's focusing too much on this idea of the right to farm rather than balance between, yes, you can farm, but you need to follow these conditions to make yes. sure you don't harm the local environment. plan is very vague. It focuses on a number of goals which, first glance, you'd think, how is that related to the environment at all? For example, one of the goals is a prosperous economy. If that was written well, you could relate it to the environment and how the environment brings tourism to the area and creates jobs and how we can manage the environment best to preserve it and enhance it, while also 
reaping those economical benefits. Overall, that goal of a prosperous economy is focusing on how can we best support the local economy, and there's nothing in there about how can the local economy support the environment. And this is the whole thing with the new plan. There's this huge focus on ownership of the Green Wedge. What can the Green Wedge do for us? Not what can we do for the Green Wedge. And we really need that balance. The Green Wedge is doing good things for us. We need to do good things for the Green Wedge or we'll lose it and we'll lose it quickly. So after the meeting, there's going to be about a month, I think, where council will have the chance to consider this. And we know in October they'll be making the final decision to pass the plan. So I think from the 10th of September until sometime in October, it's really important for people to email the Nilambic councillors, not just contacting Nilambic council itself, but actually talk to the councillors because they're the ones who are going to be making this decision. You can find their email addresses on the Nilambic website and email state MPs as well. And uh, it does sound like something we should be paying attention to because it doesn't only affect the Nolimbic Shire, but also it affects Melbourne. Mm. And depending where you live in Melbourne, you're some more in some areas than in others. That was Ben Rancharam. He's a member of the, a, n- a number of environmental groups actually in the area. And we spoke last Friday, and at the time we spoke, he had not yet seen the submissions. But if the meeting is up on... Um, coming up tomorrow and the next day then we should be able to see those submissions on the on the council website so yeah worth having a look at nilambic.vic.gov.au yes we'll be back in just a moment hello this is Dan Salton and you're listening to 3CR Blackfellow Radio Melbourne So it's 8.15, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, and we're now going to be speaking to Brett Cousins, the director of Ulster American at Red Stitch, the Actors' Theatre. So I went to watch this on Thursday, and I also stayed behind for the Q&A, and as did pretty much the whole... Um, audience and it was yeah it was brilliant um, and so I'm really happy to have the director here with us Brett Cousins um, so thank you so much Brett for chatting with us today good morning everyone how are we very good good morning Brett and um, so just to start, before I ask any questions, I do just want to say I thought it was just a fantastic production. Everybody, the actors, um, all of the stage, I mean, it was just incredible. Um, and so can you give us a little introduction about Ulster American? Oh, well, that's really lovely to hear. And apologies for my voice in advance. It's um, the theatre of taking their toll at the moment. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, Ulster American is written by David Ireland and had its premiere at the Edinburgh Festival, and uh, we're really lucky to have it. It's about, it's kind of, for me, it's about what happens when you know people who um, think they've got their moral values sorted, they think they're, you know, feminist, and they think they're uh, totally woke, and they think that they, um, that, you know, that all of their moral values are in place, and then it's about sort of what happens when the whips are cracking. And self-interest comes into play, and uh, suddenly all those moral values are tested. You know, when you get your moment to stand up, um, are you prepared to do it, even if it's going to really cost you? And of course, that makes for a fairly um, <laughs> a, a sort of a you know, it's pretty funny uh, mm-hmm. watching it all un- unravel um, for these three characters. Who are um, one is a um, a theatre director who wants to run the national, and he. Um, 
he is hosting a Hollywood Oscar-winning actor and a uh, Irish playwright uh, who's written a play that they're going to start rehearsing the next morning. And so they're getting together the night before to talk about the play only. They can't figure out what it's actually about. And um, and then sort of all hell breaks loose from there. And uh, so it's sort of a really funny, smart farce that's, you know, sort of about patriarchy and me too, mm. self-interest and, and uh, geopolitics and Brexit. All sorts of amazing, yeah, it's pretty rollicking. And uh, you've mentioned it. You've you've mentioned it just there. It's my next question. Um, so, like, Ulster American does raise huge questions around identity: who we identify ourselves as, who other people identify us as, and then the gaps sort of in between these two. And just some of them, like the Irish American or British Irish, a Remainer, a Brexiteer. Um, can you just go into a little bit more detail about these different identities and also, as you said, the feminist um, sort of post-Me Too movement? I mean, the first scene that we have is the two guys sitting there talking about how how feminist they are. And they are they are just so feminist. They are so feminist that they, they want to be women. That's how feminist they are. That's right. That's right. Oh, they are set. They are, uh, they are uh, as I said, woke. <laughs> uh, which requires that maybe they weren't woke, they were asleep previous, I'm not sure. But, um, but uh, yeah, the, the, to be honest, there's a, there's a big section of the play where this is, um, especially the uh, the Irish versus British, you know, UK national debate is sort of, it becomes this sort of um, uh, game, mm. this farcical element within the play. And I was really worried that the um, audience would get it, um, because as I said, it went on initially in Edinburgh, but actually speaking to um, audience after the, the show, it was the thing that they were kind of most interested in, they're like, I didn't get it, I didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, and, the, and uh, you know, it seems to be one of the elements of the play, people go, God, that was funny, but I really didn't have a really solid understanding of um, what the Northern Irish are dealing with at the moment, and how that relates to Brexit, and um, and you know how how uh, how they feel, how many um, Northern Irish uh, people feel about what's happening now, which is pretty cool considering how pr- um, on the zeitgeist the play is. I mean, the play is dealing with all these issues, and of course, you know, it's it's all happening right now in front of us every day at mm-hmm. the moment. So that's been that's been um, really refreshing, I think, for everybody. Yeah, because I'm from the UK, and um, and I even don't think I was educated in in that enough. Um, even when I was watching it, I felt like I was learning a lot about how um, coming from Northern Ireland, how you're. I mean, Ruth, the character, she yeah. was British to be called Irish by the two guys who, um, one American, one English, and they yeah. were just dismissing her and saying, mm, you're Irish, you're Irish. Yeah. And the only reason, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to give away too much, actually, so I won't say anything else. But oh. do, you think, do you think it was quite risky to bring it to Australia? Um, not really. With a, with a, you know, we, to, to, at Red Stitch, um, it was sort of right in the slot for what we do. So if someone asked me what Red Stitch do, um, we have a great writer's been where we're developing new Australian work, but um, principally what we've sort of cut our teeth on over the last 16, 17 years 
is that if we find the best place from around the world that are killing it in, in whatever, you know, on Broadway or off-Broadway or on the West End, that maybe are a little too edgy, you know, for um, some of the bigger companies to put on. And we do those. So, you know, you walk around the streets of London, for example, there's there's plays on with Serena McClellan in them and Glenn Close and, mm-hmm. all these, you know, all these incredible people doing all this work. And we see a tiny percentage of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Red Stitch, we see part of our job as putting those shows, bringing them to Melbourne audiences. If they're a bit edgy, if they sort of push you back in your seat a bit, and as the play says, if we can't talk about the unspeakable thought, that we're no better than engineers or theatre critics, you know, <laughs> theatre is becoming a place more relevant, I think. It's becoming a place where you can talk about a lot of stuff where... Uh, you're not supposed to talk about, and in this day and age, it's becoming, I think, an even more valuable tool. So, Red Stitch, uh, Red Stitch is, you know, we saw this play, it hits on so many of these taboo mm. um, topics, some of which, you know, we haven't spoken about, but they're kind of hard to talk about, yeah. and it just throws them out there. And for me as a director, and for Red Stitch as a company, this is sort of what we're interested in. You know, we don't want to do a play that's, oh, that's a lovely night of the theatre, wasn't that good, and then they go toddle off and, you know, do whatever. It's, you know, we're interested in plays that um, push it and that leave you with something and that, while, you know, riotously funny, are really hitting some massive, mm. some topics that I think sometimes the audience can't even believe we're hitting. So yeah. um, it was actually that, that, that combination of freshness and, um, but, top, you know, the topical nature of it, and, you know, was was um, kind of right in the hitting zone for Red Stitch. So it was kind of a... And it's so well with. Oh, absolutely. So, um, David Island's done a beautiful job. So um, it was sort of right in the slot for us mm. and a bit of a no-brainer to program. And for listeners who have just joined us, this is Brett Cousins, director of the Ulster American, which is playing at the Red Stitch, the Actors Theatre. And um, I think you're 100% hit the, hit the nail on the head there when you say the audience sometimes didn't know whether they were allowed to laugh at what was happening. I mean, I certainly looked both sides of me and thought, okay, yeah, yeah this is fine. Everyone's laughing. I can laugh. This is funny. Um, but it does, yeah, it does take a while for everybody to feel like they're in a safe place and like, okay, yes, this, I mean, this has to be spoken about. It's yeah. just not being spoken about, though. Yeah. Um, and we've mentioned David Ireland, who's the writer of the play, and he's a pretty bold writer. So yeah. I saw that he's, um, he's sort of come out and said he doesn't know how to end plays without violence. And yeah, he, yeah. He, do, he just refuses to give trigger warnings. Um, but how did you feel when you first read the play or saw the play? Um, I never saw it prior, but mm. when I read it, I got 10 pages from the end and thought, there's no way they can finish this in 10 He can finish this in 10 pages. Um, you know, where's this going? And then you see where it's going and you, you know, it kind of comes from absolutely nowhere. Mm. It's got a very satisfying ending, I think. Oh, very, yeah. Um, very Tarantino-like. And Tarantino has mentioned a lot through the film mm-hmm. because the um, American Oscar winner uh, playwright, uh, the American Oscar winning actor is, um, is, is looking to collaborate with him and, you know, he's given this script that Bruce's written displayed to him um, to look at for his next uh, American project. So, um, yeah, it's it, the, the ending kind of goes in that direction, and uh, it's pretty fun. Mm. It's pretty fun. But, I, I, you know, yeah, I don't think people see the, uh, the ending coming, which is, which is lovely.
lovely and very satisfying to the audience and yeah, it, it, it's Judith here, and I haven't seen the play, but now I'm very excited about going to see it. But <laughs> You'd I, be most welcome. Yeah, <laughs> but I love what you say about, and I think it's what the arts do as well, is is to raise um, contentious issues and to challenge the way we might look at things and uh, to you know suggest other possibilities or just to say what needs to be said. So I, I think that's um, that's terrific that you know the play is doing that. Yeah, well, David Mamet said that um, theatre might be the only place, you know, where we can, um, you know, he said he said something like we should be, and I'm paraphrasing, but we should be able to uh, stand in our front yards and talk to our next door neighbours over the fence about the truth of our times, mm. and, um, but we don't, and we don't even know our next door neighbours often, and um, theatre might be the only place where we can come together in a shared experience with our phones down, mm. and um, and and you know, and hear the truth. And, um, and and that was written, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So, um, so you know, I yeah. think theatre is becoming all the more relevant at the moment for that reason. Um, Absolutely. Because everyone's being very careful and theatre's not exempt from that. Um, there's been circumstances where theatre has been exempt from that, but it's certainly a place where you can push the boundaries and everyone has to uh, figure it out as they go along, which can be quite thrilling. Um, so we hope that's an experience we've provided. Well, you definitely did, I can confirm. Um, And so how do our listeners go and see the play? How long is it on for? The play runs, um, it it only runs to the 19th, so a couple of weeks. And uh, you can call our box office on 95338083 or go to the website, which has got that number on it, and also um, you can book just like you book a movie, you know. Yes. and uh, get your seats and stuff, and, and that's at uh, redstitch.net. So it's selling out pretty quickly because we've had some good reviews and stuff, mm-hmm. which is lovely. Not that we care about the reviewers, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, no, we you know it's been it's been such a wonderful um, reaction to this place. It's been quite overwhelming, but it has led to a few cues and things. So it's worth jumping on if you're interested. Yeah, it was and, packed um, on Thursday when I went. Yeah, it was packed last night as well, and um, and the night before. So um, it looks like it's going to be, uh, you know, we're going to stop the landing as far as the end of the season. Yeah, congratulations! Uh, yeah, congratulations! Thank you so much. Everyone, very welcome. We'd be very happy to see you. Lovely. Thanks, Brett, for joining us today, getting up early to speak to us. You're um, very welcome. Sorry about my theatre voice. Oh, no worries whatsoever. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And that was Brett Cousins, director at the Red Stitch Theatre um, for Ulster American, and I highly recommend. It was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. Um, yeah, it just throws up all these challenges, and it's one of those great pieces where you you aren't laughing at, what what is coming out of the the characters' mouths and the topics are serious and they're not funny, but the characters are so relatable. You roll your eyes and you know people like them. You know the guys who think they're woke and they're feminist uh, and they're yeah, saying all the yeah, wrong things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was brilliant. Great. Mm-hmm. It's time to wrap up the show. And uh, coming up next, we have Women, Women on, on the, the line. line. And it's been a fantastic show. Big thank you to all our guests. Some great, great people coming on the show. As always, as <laughs> always, you're on 3CR. 855 AM. Monday we'll you breakfast. all next Monday. Next week. <laughs> 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program.
You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.